Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We're back here with the second half of this casual discussion of Hainan history. My guest once again is Professor Jeremy Murray from Cal State University, San Bernardino, where he teaches Chinese history. Jeremy's one of the local sinologists here in SoCal, and I'm lucky I was able to trick him into coming onto the CHP to discuss this topic that he knows a thing or two about. Last time we got as far as the Ming Dynasty in the late 16th century, we close with a discussion of the Jesuits. This time I'd like to focus on the Qing, Republican, and PRC eras. Let's continue on with the Qing takeover of Hainan. They will push the borders of the Chinese Empire out to its greatest extent. When they came down to Hainan, was the welcome mat rolled out, or did they face resistance from the Li and others? There was a lot of resistance, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, about the attempt to develop Hainan into a kind of breadbasket. If you look at Hainan over this long period of time, one of the most common things you see is external designs on the island to develop it. And you keep hearing this sort of language of untapped potential. And it's a very colonial kind of a language. It's hard to avoid that, that word, that it's really a kind of extractive approach to the island. And I think it's only natural that that is not going to be especially popular, especially when it's observed that this is not as much of a kind of here-to-stay kind of development as it is a very, very hasty sort of extractive approach. And you see this especially because so much of what is sought after are these luxury goods, things like pearls, jade, incense, and some uh, you know, highly sought after agricultural goods and, fine, and precious metals and that kind of thing. And so there's a lot of resistance. Some of the Lee, to use that language, some of the Lee assimilate into the coastal Han communities and trade with them. Some of the Han, for their part, move into Lee communities. And so we do see fluidity in there, but definitely in terms of the way the government is framing it, this is a period of the Ming, and then especially in the Qing dynasty, we see a lot of attempts to completely suppress any kind of Li resistance to mainland Chinese rule. And this goes on for centuries, really, into the 20th century, well into the 20th century, so that, as we'll note later, by some accounts, the Hainan communists actually become one of those groups that actually align themselves with the Li as much as the Li align themselves with the communist guerrillas there making making common cause and, and learning the, the geography of the interior of the island. But there's the, these Lee suppression campaigns are the way that we that we learn about the Lee. A scholar of this, Anne Set, C-S-E-T-E, 
has published some great work on the Qing attempts to bring Hainan into the map or to have Hainan enter the map and, and, and bring it into the civilized realm. There are obviously a lot of issues with this, a lot of, a lot of resistance to this. And this comes during the Qing dynasty, especially. We'll talk more about the Hainan diaspora later on. But when was it that they began to set sail for all ports south and west of Hainan? When did they start migrating en masse? I believe later than the Diochus, Hokkien, Hakkas, and Cantonese, right? One thing I will note is that in this period, there are major waves of immigration to Hainan movements, uh, and from those two regions you just mentioned, from Guangdong and from Fujian. So we see movement of mainlanders to Hainan, especially in the Qing dynasty, out to Hainan. And then in terms of those diaspora communities, and again, I think this is something that you can set me straight on a little bit, but they are uh, among the later arrivals. Is that right? And so they're seen in a, in a way as somewhat inferior to those other mainland emigrants who arrived first in these communities, whether it's Southeast Asia yeah. or farther afield. Right. They were the last ones to arrive in significant numbers, at least in Malaysia and Singapore. And consequently, when they began to settle, the best trades, businesses, and jobs were all taken by those who had come from Guangdong and Fujian. And these earliest arrivals, these pioneers... Once they got settled and got the lay of the land, they sent for their relatives and fellow villagers. And before long, as I mentioned, they began to dominate certain professions. And this left the late arriving Hainanese with the jobs that were, you know, sort of looked down upon by others, mainly in the service trade as houseboys, cooks and servants working for the British colonials, the Peranakan and upper class Chinese. I mean, this wasn't True in every case, plenty of Hainanese joined the Hakkas working in the mines and on the plantations, but they had this stigma and were sort of looked down upon and not given the respect they were due. So these first Hainanese immigrants, where were they coming from? What part of Hainan? Most of them were coming from the east coast of Hainan. And so just like mainland China, you see a lot of these overseas communities coming from relatively small, almost sort of village regions where you can pinpoint the location of a lot of these people. And in Hainan, the region is especially Wenchang. Wenchang is a northeastern region, northeastern city or, or a large town at that time, uh, becomes a city by, by today. And it's from Wenchang that you see a lot of the emigration of Hainanese off the island. Yeah, Wenchang, Qionghai, Wanning, these places that were geographically all next door to each other. That was sort of like the sweet spot on the northeast coast. Which Hainanese do we remember most? Who came from there, besides Hairei, of course? The biggest one I'll note is Charlie Song. Goes by a number of names, but Charlie Song uh, becomes connected with some foreign missionaries, makes its way across the United States as a young man, uh, learns very good English, and, and goes into a number of trades, a number of sort of import export ventures, Bible sales among them, and makes an enormous fortune. And by some accounts, again, and Seagrave C- and, and others sort of drive this home, becomes a kind of Joe Kennedy within modern Chinese history. And I've heard this, and I, I don't know if I've heard on your show that this sort of parallel drawn before. Today, interestingly, when you go to Hainan, you will go to the ancestral home or the family home of Charlie Song near to Wenchang, and you'll see it celebrated as the Gu Xiangnyo, the ancestral home of Song Qingling. 
Yes, of course, Song Ching Ling, the one who loved China, as opposed to her sisters, who loved money and power. Who else was there? Not that many that are as noteworthy as others from amongst the Hakas, Hokkien, Cantonese, and Teochews. I think, actually, this is, again, something that you know a little bit more about in terms of financiers and businessmen who make their way, sometimes from relatively humble roots in, in Hainan. Well, the one I'll always remember was Nyam Tong Boon. That was Yen Chong Wen in Mandarin. I'll never forget, on my first trip to Singapore in 1986, I stayed at the Raffles. This was before it was closed down in 1989 for that major facelift that took a couple of years. I couldn't resist moseying into the uh, long bar there to mingle with the spirits of Rudyard Kipling, and Somerset Maugham, Noel Coward, and, and Ernest Hemingway. And as I enjoyed my Singapore slang, I noticed printed on the coaster that the drink had been invented by the barman there, Nyan Tong Boon, in 1915. But uh, there was no mention that he was a Hainanese immigrant or came from Hainanese immigrants. And I think there's a number of other prominent Hainanese businessmen who make their way, especially throughout Southeast Asia, where there's such fluidity in this earlier period, prior to the late 19th century with the Japanese conquest, and then also, of course, in the the 20th century. I think there are a lot of other prominent Hainanese individuals who do indeed make their mark in Southeast Asia, places like Indonesia, and especially around the region. Yeah, in Thailand... The only major one I could think of would be the family who owns the central group, the uh, Chiratiwat family. The founder was uh, Zheng Xinping, who left Hainan in 1927 to seek his fortune in Bangkok. You know, I'm sure there are many others, but certainly not as many as we remember from the other four linguistic groups from China. Let's move on to the fall of the Qing and get into more modern times. What was in store for Hainan after the fall of the Qing in 1911? Well, there's a, there's a connection here to what we were just discussing, actually, and that is, that's the person of Lin Wenying. Lin Wenying is a major figure. He is very close to uh, Sun Yat-sen in this period. He is an important figure in the world of what's going to become the Xinhai Revolution, the 1911 Revolution, in the final years of the Qing Dynasty. So an important aspect of who Lin Wenying is, is his, his personal connection to Sun Yat-sen. He has deep connections in Southeast Asia. There are roads named after him in Thailand. And he's a major revolutionary figure. He's an early revolutionary who cuts his queue, spends most of his time abroad, particularly in Southeast Asia. Like Sun Yat-sen, a really big part of what he does is raise funds and raise awareness about the anti-Manchu movements that are going to build into a number of the attempted revolutions, what were at first little more than really pretty, pretty hopeless, quixotic efforts by a handful of revolutionaries in the very late 1800s into the early 1900s, attempts to spark off a revolution and as we know now, that's going to also require lots of infiltration of the Chinese Revolutionary Army. It's going to require a lot of uh, late Qing gentry to be sort of brought around into this idea of anti-Manchu revolution. But even before those days, before the revolutionary ideas had so crept into the new army, the new military, you had figures like Lin Wenying of Hainan traveling around places like Southeast Asia, with Sun Yat-sen. Sometimes uh, the two of them were actually together. 
And uh, Lin Wenying was was the figure who sort of knew his way around in Southeast Asia sometimes and was guiding Sun Yat-sen through, through the region on these fundraising trips and, and also sort of speaking tours to, to raise money among these small revolutionary groups. What about the warlord era? When I did that 10-part series, I don't recall mentioning much of anything about what was happening in Hainan between 1916 to 1930. The big one we know about is Long Ji Guang, and it's him who's going to be responsible, actually, for the execution of Lin Wenying. So we see a kind of parallel here in miniature, which is a tendency that's often tempting because that sort of fits the national narrative, that model that Hainan is a kind of miniature of everything that's going on in the mainland. So I tried to resist that. But indeed, in the case of Long Ji Guang, we're going to see this figure. He's connected especially to the northern warlords, especially to Yuan Shikai and later to Wan Rei. And he's going to, in this immediate period after the 1911-1912 transitional period, he's going to carry over, like Yuan Shikai, as a former Qing official who then, you know, simply changes the flag and, and becomes a strongman under the new Republic of China. And so this sort of, sort of a, a bit of a meet the new boss kind of a situation in Hainan and actually even more brutal because we see a relatively effective new army. The new revolutionary army is more effective in these early teen years. There are connections here with things like May 4th, 1919, where there are some Hainanese among those groups that are that are protesting in Beijing, protesting the signing of the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. And then again, a few years later, in the May 30th movement of 1925, again, we're going to see strong connections there um, with Hainan. Of course, May 4th is mainly way up in Beijing in 1919. And then in 1925, May 30th is in Shanghai. And you see that there is participation there among Hainan leadership, most notably a guy that I studied a lot named Feng Baiju, who's going to become the leading figure within the Hainanese communist movement. Okay, so while we're on the subject of May 30th, uh, 1925, the CCP is barely four years old at this time. Was Hainan already on the leadership's radar? Did they send any cadres down to Hainan to start organizing? Can you talk about the earliest CCP history down in Hainan? Yeah, there are a few figures who are the most prominent ones in the early communist history of Hainan. The one, uh, Feng Baiju, is the central figure of Hainan's communist history, and he is present at May 30th. He's there in 1925, and he's going to come back and be one of the most prominent leaders, and he is a native son of Hainan. But there also are a number of figures who are sent from the mainland communist headquarters to Hainan, and this happens through the late 20s. Like Feng, some of them are native Hainanese who then come back to Hainan, but there are a few others who are definitely outsiders. And most prominent among these is a party luminary in some accounts with quite a lineage actually as well. And that's Li Shuoxun. Li Shuoxun arrives on Hainan in July of 1931. Uh, So this is a few years after the outbreak of the civil war. And he's within two months captured by the nationalist authorities and executed. And this is a subject of great controversy because it gets to the core of the relationship between the Hainan communist movement and the mainland communist movement. 
And it also connects to issues related to the anti-localism campaigns that are going to take place in the 1950s that have to do with how much Hainan is on the same page as the mainland in terms of the communist revolution. And so when Li Shuoxun arrives on Hainan and is promptly captured and executed, there are concerns there that he's been betrayed by someone within the communist movement. And the question then becomes, is this deliberate? There are lots of rival factions. There are, there are several rival factions within the communist movement at this time, different revolutionary itineraries that are unfolding, some of which are connected to Moscow, some of which are connected to different personalities within the movement, some of which are still Trotskyist in this moment. But in, in the case of Li Shoshun, we have this example of an outsider communist leader coming to Hainan and very promptly being captured and executed. And I think this remains a sore spot. And the kicker to this story is that Li Shoshun was really an emerging star within the communist leadership. He was, like I said, present at May 30th. He was also present at the Nanchang uprising, the August 1st, 1927, uh, the birth of the Red Army. And he's also a rising star. He's from Sichuan. He's a rising star within the communist leadership. And his connection to the top brass of the communist leadership is reflected in the adoption, uh, or, or rather, not, maybe not formal adoption, but the fact that his son ultimately is going to be mentored uh, and in some ways raised by Zhou Enlai and his wife, Deng Yingchao, later premier of China, Zhou Enlai. And that son is also going to go on to be the premier of China. That is Li Peng. So Li Peng is the young child. I think he's three years old at the time of his father, Li Shuoxun's capture and execution in 1931. And he's going to go on to become a luminary within the party himself. So that connection is an interesting one that Li Peng's father has this connection to Hainan and a sort of dubious connection, especially when it's considered within the context of Li Shuoxun having been betrayed by somebody within the communist movement uh, right when he arrives in Hainan. And so it gets to the core of the conflict and the perception of Hainan as a backwards place that needs mainland leadership. And in this way, we see Li Shuoxun as a kind of case study in the relationship between communists on Hainan and communists in the mainland. And his tomb, Li Shuoxun's tomb, is that uh, located in Hainan? His tomb is right around the corner from the Five Ministers' Temple, actually. It's right around the uh. corner from the Wugongzi. And it is quite grand. It's commissioned, I believe, in the 80s, possibly actually parts of it, the statue, the large bust, the marble bust there, uh, commissioned in 1989 of all years. And so there's, there's sort of a, another uh, Li Peng connection there in the establishment of this sort of party royalty and its imprint on Hainan. And after the uh, Marco Polo Bridge incident in July 1937, how did everything that followed with Japan's designs on China affect Hainan? Did they go down there too? Yeah, absolutely. The, the Japanese are not really on Hainan in earnest until February of 1939. And in the lead up to that period, interestingly, you see that Japan definitely has designs on Hainan. That is evident. At this point, remember, Taiwan is essentially a Japanese colony. 
from 1895. And Taiwan is, if you look at the map, you see these two huge islands about the same size, Taiwan and Hainan. And so perhaps in the Japanese imperial mindset, you see it, it make a lot of sense for Japan to also be eyeing Hainan. In that period, you also see some expressions of French colonial designs on Hainan. And its proximity to Hong Kong means that the British also have some designs. Now, if not to be outdone, you also have the Americans arriving in the Philippines. And so you, you see some figures like Lin Wenying and other revolutionary thinkers on Hainan considering their island really beset by all of these potentially hostile foreign forces through the early part of the 1900s, when, as we know, the central government of what's called Republican China or the Republic of China is so weak that it has to sort of farm out or delegate out its uh, provincial leadership to these militarists like Long Guang, these guys that we, we know in shorthand as, as warlords these days. So certainly the local rule is going to be very weak, even weaker uh, than it had been in the late Qing. And it's going to be the Japanese Navy that moves in, especially in strength, about a little less than two years after the outbreak of full-scale hostilities at Marco Polo Bridge in July of 1937 up north. It's in February of 1939 that we see the, the whole-scale invasion and occupation of Hainan by the Japanese. Now, they don't have a lot of success in the inland. This is because it perhaps is not an extremely high priority. What they are able to do is set up iron mines. And so again, we see this sort of extractive approach to Hainan. This is really the, the story that we keep coming back to, this idea of Hainan as a very rich, a very fertile place from which so much can be extracted. And we see this through the parade of Chinese dynasties and now again with the Japanese occupation. That's going to last from 39 until 45. And in that period, the nationalist forces are going to retreat from the coast of the island because the Japanese occupy the coast. They use it as a, a naval base, especially in the south in Yulin, near Sanya. And of course, they also use it as a launch pad into Southeast Asia and into Southern China. And of course, for its, its strategic importance that we're learning uh, so much about in the last 5, 10, 15 years. But they also are able to extract iron, which is a big part of what the Japanese want. Now, the nationalists retreat to the interior. And when they do that, they come up against very, very strong Lee resistance, Lee resistance to the nationalists retreating to some kind of mountain bases. And so we see a lot of very, very harsh campaigns, massacres that are documented by foreign observers and, and by communist guerrillas at this time as well. Massacres that take place in Lee villages by the nationalist forces. And this is not only communist propaganda, but we see foreign accounts also of this taking place, nationalist massacres of Lee villages, because the Lee are resistant to the nationalist retreating from the coast and occupying their own mountain villages. And so we see an enormous amount of violence, not only between the Japanese and the Hainanese, but be between the nationalists who are forced uh, into Lee territory, which leads to a lot of conflict. So that taking place in this period, and while all of this is taking place, of course, you have the beginnings of the Hainanese communist movement. And then how about during the Civil War years, 1945 to 1949, what was happening down in Hainan? Was that a nice, easy, and clean, and peaceful takeover by the communists down there? Um. 
I'd say, no, it was a messy sort of a lurch to Uh the incorporation of Hainan. And this happens actually in the spring of 1950. And so just to sort of flash back, in in the spring of 1950, the rallying cry was, for for 23 years, the red flag never fell on Hainan. And this was a really distinctive claim to make. That is the communist guerrillas of Hainan, their battle cry in the final campaign in the spring of 1950 was, for 23 years, the red flag never fell. And the implication is the red flag never fell on Hainan. The reason that's so remarkable is because when we look at the mainland communist Chinese forces, one of the most important distinguishing aspects of them is that they moved around. But through that period, from the earliest days of the Hainan communist movement, the sheer numbers of the Hainanese communists shrinks and grows and shrinks and grows again a number of times down to just a handful of guerrilla fighters in the mountains. And that includes this figure, uh, Feng Baiju, and his family around a campfire in the mountains through the 1930s and into the early 1940s. And then one of the most important incidents there is going to be the Baisha uprising of the Li and then their connection between two figures, Feng, Feng Baiju among the communists, and then Wang Guoxing as one of the main leaders of the Li people. And the two of them make an alliance and bring their two separate groups together in 1943, sort of moving toward it in 1942. And then in 43, they are allied so that the communists have freedom of movement and remember how difficult it was for the nationalists to make their way in the mountain interior because of their hostile relations with the Li. That is not going to be as much of a problem, especially after this alliance is struck between the communists and the Li people. And again, that becomes a really important marker of the Hainan communist revolution, so that there is no long march to be had. The Hainan communists can't go on a long march. They can't leave. And given the opportunity to leave in 1946, so in that brief moment when everybody was able to catch their breath and Marshall tried to get involved and settle things, and hopefully there wasn't going to be the sort of reignition of the civil war that had raged since really 1927, on and off, even through the Japanese occupation. In that brief moment, the communist leadership orders the Hainanese communists to leave Hainan. And they do it twice. First, they say, get your folks out of there, get your, get your people out of there, get them, get them up, bring them up here to Shandong, Beicha, re- retreat to the north. So basically, get any of your Hainanese communist fighters. Uh, and at this point, there are several thousand of them, depending how you count the partisans or the irregulars and the regular forces. And there had been several years throughout this period that the Hainan communists had been out of contact with the mainlanders. And so they had developed in in a very uh, sort of distinctive way. And they actually respectfully disobey this order, this order to leave Hainan. They give the first reason of not being able to trust the nationalist forces there. And that's Chen Jitang, Chen Hanguang, a number of figures who are allied with the nationalist military. But then they, they, they somewhat gratuitously add on, you know, we, we can't escape, we can't get out of here, but also we're not going to abandon the gains that we have made, the revolutionary gains that we have made over, you know, what is basically two decades of fighting. 
And we're not going to abandon the civilian population, that includes the Lee people, who have supported our revolution. And maybe that was a mistake. But I've read these communications back and forth because they, they didn't need to say that. They could have just said, we can't. If we try to break through, we're going to be massacred by the nationalists. They're not going to let us get on boats. They're not going to let us out of here. But this was sort of part of the agreement between the nationalists and the communists when, when the Civil War has, was sort of briefly paused, that the communists would hold their northern bases and the nationalists would have their southern bases. And so they had to get the communists out of their southern bases. And the communist leadership, sort of newly in contact with the mainland communist leadership, the communist leadership on Hainan, says, no, we, we can't do it. But they also kind of say we won't do it. And this is really interesting to me because then another order follows and says, okay, well, you need to, you know, if you can't get up north, then you need to go to uh, friendly base areas over in Vietnam, of course, where we know that there are also nascent communist movements and you can connect with them. And again, the same reply comes back. We can't do it. We can't break out of the nationalist blockade. But again, they also again say, we're not going to. These two orders make for a, a very, very interesting dynamic. Because the Hainanese communist leadership want to be saying, we are part of this revolution. We are completely committed and completely dedicated to the success of the communist revolution in China. But we're not going to abandon the island. We're not going to leave. And they are given these two opportunities to do so. After the declaration of the communist victory, October 1st, 1949, the nationalists are still holding Hainan and Taiwan. And Hainan, again, is about the same size as Taiwan. So Chiang Kai-shek certainly pulls in all of his best forces, his most technologically advanced materiel back to Taiwan. And Hainan is still being held by Xue Yue, who is a very, very well-respected nationalist general. There are still uh, tens of thousands of nationalist forces on Hainan, but things are looking pretty grim. And here, one of the most important differences between Hainan and Taiwan is that Hainan is about 10 miles off the Chinese coast, off the mainland Chinese coast, and Taiwan is about 100 miles off, uh, off the Chinese coast. And so that crucial, crucial distinction of either 10 miles you can make in a, in a, in a fishing boat, 100 miles, obviously, you've, you've got to have a much more logistically sophisticated plan. So that makes Hainan much more untenable for the nationalists. The other crucial distinction is that local communist force, that stubborn local communist force that did not want to leave, given the opportunity, given two orders to leave, did not want to leave the island. And so the coordination of these mainland forces, the local Hainanese guerrilla forces, brings about the swift crumbling of the nationalist regime on Hainan. And this is April and May of 1950. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Let me ask, the um, classic cultural revolution ballet, the Red Detachment of Women, the Hongse Nyangtze Jun, that had a high non angle, didn't it? What was the history behind that? I mentioned in my Joe N. Lai series that Premier Joe had a major hand as the uh, impresario behind that production. Why was that so glorified? That's a really interesting story. And I just finished an article about it, or rather a book chapter that's going to come out in a contributed volume. And, uh, and so hopefully I can send you the link for that. But this is a really fascinating story. The participation of women in the communist fighting forces on Hainan was much higher than the participation by women in the communist fighting forces in the mainland. The actual episode is fictional. The figure of uh, Hong Changqing and, and Wu Qinghua did not exist in Nam Tian, but it represents something I think that's interesting, very important. Of course, we have this sort of orthodox language throughout because this becomes based on the non-musical film by Xie Jin, which I think is 60, maybe 62 great Chinese filmmaker Xie Jin does a non-musical film about the Red Detachment of Women in which this fictionalized version of the, uh, of the Red Detachment of Women is glorified, of course. There are a couple of things that I want to flag here. One is that there are about 103 women, well, exactly 103 women uh, at, at the founding, and then those numbers changed, obviously, throughout the campaigns. The period is 1930 to 31, specifically. Um, the decision by Feng Baiju as the leader of the communist movement on Hainan is to establish a, a unit of women fighters who are going to engage in combat, but who are also going to engage in espionage across the island so that this, this unit is established because of the high representation of women among the communist fighters. As spectacular and as wonderful as this ballet is, it's amazing to behold it's a great work of, of acrobatics and of music. There's this unfortunate element to it, which is the addition of this figure, Hong Changqing, who is, uh, who is completely fictional. He's added as a kind of uh, conscious or subconscious disciplining force that, that reinforces cultural traditions of patriarchy, but also reasserts mainland control over the, the Hainan communist movement. So I, 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 I think that's a fascinating aspect of it. It is definitely worth watching and, uh, and encountering this really fa- fascinating uh, piece of culture. Wasn't that the ballet that Nixon and his wife Pat got dragged to by Jiang Qing to go see during the Shanghai portion of the 1972 uh, week that changed the world? <laughs> Absolutely. And and then, of course, there was an opera based on it. And, and by some accounts, I think Pat Nixon, the actor playing Wu Qinghua, was so convincing in the way that she was crying out while she was being beaten by the landlord, the vicious landlord with his big eyebrows, you know, and she was so <laughs> she was so convincing that I, by some accounts, Pat Nixon actually jumped up and, and ran onto stage <laughs> to help her resist the great landlord. So I guess Gee, Pat Nixon was ready to, uh, to make revolution. Gee, I never heard that. Was that how it was reported in the People's Daily? It's a good question. I think it is in the John Adams opera. 
I, I think that it actually yeah. happens in the opera. And so it just as the so so we have sort of a drama within a drama within a drama. Just as, you know, Hong Changqing has eclipsed our memory of the leadership of the unit. So, too, you know, Pat Nixon kind of eclipsed our, our, our memory of the opera itself or of the, the ballet. For most of PRC history, Hainan was sort of this stepchild of Guangdong province. When did Hainan start to come into its own as an administrative region and later on as a province and special economic zone as well? Like a lot of other regions, the reform and opening period and the, the connection to the outside world, the special economic zones set up are sort of modeled by the father of the current leader of China. Uh, Xi Jinping's father, Xi Zhongxun, was so essential in setting up these special economic zones through the 1980s. Hainan is part of that project. We see the beginning of a lot of investment efforts in Hainan, not only from mainland China, but also from foreign interests in Hainan. That includes natural resources, that includes mining and that kind of thing. Um, and through the 1980s, we see the beginnings of the development of, of Hainan as an administrative le- region. And then also we see this, this sort of launching of Hainan as a special economic zone heading toward, of course, 1988 and the establishment of Hainan as a province. Yeah, I recall, and I was living out in Hong Kong at the time, that there was this heavy-duty corruption scandal that happened down in Hainan, truly epic in scale, that really ground things to a halt for a while. That's absolutely right. This had to do with selling or reselling of subsidized goods that included cars. And so there was this enormous uh, corruption campaign where company vehicles or government vehicles are being resold on the black market after having been given or requisitioned by the government, being imported. And because of the sort of thumb on the scale economics here, you see a lot of opportunity for for corruption, an enormous amount of opportunity for corruption. That was the sort of faltering start of a lot of this early development on Hainan. And Hainan was in the news on April 1st, 2001, with the so-called Hainan incident that was a U.S. Navy EP-3E Ares II spy plane that collided with a PLA Navy J-8 interceptor fighter. What about that dust-up? Yeah, that was, again, another one of those things, really huge in the news. One of the rare moments, again, where Hainan is spotlighted, and again, for somewhat dubious reasons. We see these American spy planes, these sort of lumbering (laughs) craft, uh, EP-3 craft. Yeah, it was April Fool's Day, 2001. The American spy plane is forced to land on Hainan after a midair collision. Both sides blame each other for the collision. The Chinese pilot died and in the, the aftermath and the American craft landed on Hainan and was detained. And the aircraft was dismantled. They were held for, um, I'm not sure how long it was. It was about 10 days, uh, but they were- oh, It felt like 10 years. I, yeah. I remember it was a nail biter. It felt like a long detention, and and then they were released, and the issue diffused. Well, five months later, this potentially explosive incident got swept aside with the 9-11 attacks in New York and the paradigm shift that caused in all sorts of ways. Well, what is there to say? Hainan sure has come a long way from the times of the banishment of the five lords and Su Shi. It was sure considered to be such a 
horrible place back then. Now, of course, it's a vacation paradise and one of the most popular holiday destinations for Chinese local tourists and foreigners alike. And, of course, for all those overseas Hainanese who have traveled back to their ancestral villages to see from whence they came. I've actually seen a bunch of these videos on YouTube from some of these Singaporean, Malaysian, and American Hainanese who have gone back to to uh, Tanchin, you know, to visit their relatives there. It's so interesting to see. And I, hey, I'll admit, as it often is when I uh, see these kind of vids of overseas Chinese greeting their relatives, you know, back in the ancestral villages, it brought a lump to my throat sometimes. I had to, I had to go get a tissue or something. It's so heartwarming, you know, something about this. Now you go down there and you see some of these towers, you know, it looks like you're in Dubai. You see that the development of these these massive condominium complexes and luxury resorts. There are also special visa policies where, where a number of countries allow foreigners to travel to Hainan, land in Hainan without prearranged visa. So if any of your listeners are thinking of going to China, you can check out this option. You can actually make sure you dot all your I's and cross all your T's. Uh, in terms of what you do need to do. But there are efforts by the Chinese government to to bring tourism to Hainan specifically. And there are exceptional visa policies just for visiting Hainan Island. Anything you want, you can you can find it these days in, in Hainan. Well, as soon as this dang pandemic burns itself out, and that day will not come soon enough, I can't wait to go back and visit. You know, in all my years of China travel... That week in Sanya, although it was more of a hanging out on the beach thing than a sightseeing trip, I just had such a fantastic time there. Well, we can't have this discussion about Hainan without mentioning some of the cultural icons or symbols of the province. And what greater cultural symbol is there than the Hainanese chicken rice, Hainan Ji Fan, or Wen Chang Ji Fan, since this most famous of dishes originated in the city of Wenchang? There's a whole bunch of joints in and around L.A. where you can get this dish. And among people not familiar with China, but with Chinese cuisine, I dare say the Hainanese chicken and rice might be more famous than the province of Hainan itself. My whole family just loves that dish. It's a real Montgomery family favorite, I'll say. What Hainanese food did you sample when you were there? Yeah, absolutely fantastic food there. I happen to be a vegetarian, so I did not get in with the with the Hainan chicken rice, but that is the ultimate Hainan dish and uh, with with I think Wenchang origins. And you can find it in Hainan, but also in lots of overseas communities, and you see variations of it uh, throughout uh, Southeast Asia, Indonesia. But that is the most iconic dish of Hainan, I think, the Hainan chicken rice. Hainanese coffee yeah. is is also a big one. Uh, have you tried the Hainanese coffee? Hainanese coffee. You know, I regret to say I never had it. I, I had coffee whilst in Sanya, and while it was nothing that anyone would recognize here, I don't think it was the authentic Hainanese kopi. My wife, who was born in Saigon, as it was called when she lived there, she introduced me to Café Soda, which I enjoy quite often. Sounds somewhat uh, a little bit similar to Hainanese coffee. But regarding uh, Hainanese coffee or kopi, as I mentioned, the great cooks and restaurateurs of Malaysia and Singapore were the Hainanese. So many of them parlayed their experiences working in the homes of these upper crust families 
uh, into opening restaurants and also what's what's another cultural symbol of Singapore and Malaysia and elsewhere, I'm sure, of these coffee houses or kopitiams, that's, that's cafe tien, that serve up the famous Hainanese coffee and other snacks and morning delights. And these kopitiams are, are the centerpiece of a whole kopitiam culture that exists out there. You know, how like... Um, Perhaps, you know, dim sum is to Cantonese food culture. These kopitiams were a creation of the Hainanese. And it was the Hainanese immigrants who brought rubber and coffee growing from Malaysia to Hainan and jump-started that whole industry. Even today, for rubber products, Hainan has a lot of factories engaged in the manufacturing of these categories of goods. And I remember back in the early 90s, the outfit I was with in Hong Kong got into the fishing waders business. You know, we sold those rubber fishing waders to Kmart, and we bought, you know, these hip waders and chest waders from a factory in, I don't know, Haiko or somewhere. And that was my earliest intro to Hainan, I think. It's the only region that's under PRC control that has a lot of these tropical or subtropical agricultural goods. And so in that way, it's still a huge part of, of the Hainan economy. Well, time flies when you're having fun. I don't know about you, but I sure enjoyed our discussion and boning up on my Hainan history. I hope my Hainanese listeners who have been asking for this all these years are leaving the table somewhat satisfied. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest was my good friend, Professor Jeremy A. Murray from the famous California State University, San Bernardino. If any of my esteemed listeners want to contact you, how can they do that? I'll send you over my faculty page at CSUSB that has my contact information. Uh, and then also the link to the uh, CSUSB Modern China Lecture Series that featured you and the, and the Moors, as we discussed. Yeah, that was a fun little online get-together. Nothing like Lee and Rob Moore of the Chinese Literature Podcast. Those two are a regular riot. I'll have links to that little jam session we had that you uh, moderated. Everything will be found in the show notes if you're interested to go check that out. I just want to thank you, Laszlo. This has been an absolute delight. A longtime listener, and uh, it's really an honor, really a delight to, to join you. And also your many listeners, some of whom are of Hainanese descent. I hope that I did justice at least to beginning to explore this topic. There's so much to get into. There's so much history here. I can give you some links. I know you're already going to share a bunch of links for your listeners to learn more. So uh, I hope I did justice to, to just getting started on the subject. And thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you today. Well, Jeremy, once again, I thank you for finding time to come on the program. The check is in the mail. And it's my hope that we can do this again one day. And for all my good-looking listeners all over the world, on behalf of myself and my guest, Dr. Jeremy Murray, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from an undisclosed location here in the City of Angels, beseeching you, as always, to come back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.